Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. So last time, Megan and I talked about female jobs in science fiction. Since then, our friend David Tallerman has written a blog about a one-star review of the first of his Black River Chronicle books. Regular listeners will know that Megan and I really like these books. The review went as follows. Tagline, misleads readers, supports girls' superhero storyline. This is a girl's superhero book. It's written in the Harry Potter style, but lacks the quality of character development common with them. It uses suitable narratives to bring the reader to the realisation that females are quicker, smarter, brighter, more heroic than males. If you like a girl's superhero book, you will like it. If you dislike veiled references to female supremacy in the guise of a fantasy novel, then you won't like the book. Science fiction is a vision of the future. But fantasy is a world that mimics the modern or past world that we know, but alters it in ways that can either be subtle or all-consuming. If you can believe that dragons exist in an alternative world, why can't you believe that there might be women with skills independent of the men around them? What makes this review so laughable is that if you actually read the Black River books, you'll find that Tia, the character being referred to, does have ninja-like skills, but lacks any social graces whatsoever. This is a book where the characters have flaws just as big as their skills. Tia isn't even the main point of view character, and it's arguable to say that she's the least well-rounded of them all. Certainly the others pull their weight just as much as she does with their different skill sets. So, with the lovely Lucy Hansen back with us and spared the Star Trek talk, we thought we'd see if fantasy fed any better or worse in the female jobs market than science fiction did. What are some of the common jobs we see women fulfilling in fantasy narratives? And do you think there's a big divide between the subgenres such as high fantasy, sword and sorcery, urban fantasy, that kind of thing? So, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, for me, it was kind of less about jobs when I was trying to think about women in fantasy, and it came up more like their titles. So, you know, princess, queen, <laughs> I find a lot of that kind of thing. But also, you know, you have the standard barmaid, servant girls, and of course, prostitutes, uh, especially if we talk Game of Thrones. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, also, I also found a lot of assassins, um, quite a few assassins in there, um, which seem to go against the grain. I was going to say, I'd like to know some more female assassins, um, apart from uh, in uh, RJ's book. Uh, so obviously, yeah, we have RJ's book. And let me think, it was, is it Blades of the em- Old Empire by Anna something? Do you know? Because I basically, I sat down and I went through all of my fantasy books and I looked at them all. And if I had time, I'd go back upstairs and have a look at it. And if I think of any more fancy assassin ones, then I will come back to it. But I was being, we suppose we've got Arya as well, if we think about Game of Thrones, um, who of course eventually comes in an assassin. So they were more sort of modern ones than sort of thinking a bit further back. But there, there were quite a few coming out. But then I suppose there's always been this idea that women can be incredibly vicious, which kind of suits the assassin role. You get this idea that women are poisoners because they're, you know, really cunning and, and devious and that kind of suits an assassin. But, you know, what about just out and out heroes like we were talking about in, in Black River? Yeah, I mean it's interesting that you say that about assassins because they're kind of the it's the, the sneakier deaths rather than the uh out and out just, you know, stab a dude. Um <laughs> It is different. The one that I thought of that Lucy might have um, thoughts on, because I know she's a fan, but uh, Polgara from the David Eddings books. Because I just feel like when you meet Polgara, you know, she's one of the most powerful sorcerers in this world, and yet she's just working as a kitchen hand. I was like, oh, why? <laughs> I'm sorry, what did you just call her? Oh, is it? I'm sorry, is it is it an Australian pronunciation? Do you call her Polgara or something? I call her Polgara. Okay. I'm really sorry, that's how I read it too. <laughs> so one of the subgenres I thought about where women seem to do quite well is obviously steampunk. Now I don't know um a lot about this, but I we do of course have the lovely Gail Carragher, um, who has written some fabulous steampunk stuff. And women seem to be more kind of <sighs> They might sort of let's take for example her um her finishing school series. They've all kind of got traditional roles, but with exceptional skills that you wouldn't necessarily see within those roles. And I think that's a 
a fun part of steampunk that you've kind of got this society where you've got traditional roles, but with the extra jazz of, of whatever creations or, or skills you might need in, in that new world. And I think that provides a, a good sort of um, area for women to develop in. And we've talked about jobs. Well, yeah, actually, that picks up something interesting about Polgara as well, that, you know, that the reason she might be an all powerful sorceress, but, you know, Garion was orphaned as a boy and obviously did need a mother figure and someone to take care of him and and the whole point of kind of Polgara's cooking is that she I think it she it fulfills her in some way she has lived like four and a half thousand years and she is very she really does enjoy cooking um and she's she's very happy in 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 a kind of domestic role um and so I've I in a way I like to think that that's actually a positive representation of of domesticity because you know, we're usually going on about the fact that, you know, women should get out of the kitchen. They they shouldn't feel oppressed. But I think in Polgara's case, because everybody knows that she is this incredibly powerful being. Um, and I quite like the way that Eddings shows us another side of her, that actually she's just as comfortable um, cooking delicious pies <laughs> as she is smiting, um, you know, one of the many dreadfully racist tribes <laughs> there was one book that i wanted to give a bit of a shout out to um sort of along the same fun vein of gail carragher is strange practice by vivian shaw and then um the sequel to that which i have got for review at some point but it's um i don't really know if it counts as fantasy or horror because it's it's got horror elements of vampires and ghouls and all sorts in it but it, it is not particularly scary so i suppose it depends where the divide is um but she has um a descendant of uh dr van helsing which is uh, greta van helsing and she is a doctor in the modern day and she deals with ghosts and vampires and she literally is a doctor to the undead and i just thought that was such a a nice twist to it and it's done really well there's no kind of sexism in it and it's just you know it's just the idea of a genuine woman who is getting on with her job and okay she's got vampires to deal with instead of your average you know patient in the waiting room but it, I just thought that was really good and I, I really like where that was going so I just wanted to give a little shout out to that book. So you exactly so you kind of hit upon a point which is that a woman had profession before the story started so you feel like her profession didn't just originate with you know the the ending of the world you know the, the build up to the great battle like that she was happily living her life and um you know and studying and graduating and perfecting her her skills before all of this stuff happens like before the beginning of the novel i think that's what is possibly missing from a lot of the a lot of fantasy um that you, you know you feel like these these amazing skills that women develop are skills developed in response to a life-threatening situation or a world-threatening situation i like the idea that they already had them to begin with is that also like when you come to things like you know when we, we look at the subgenres you know an urban fantasy say or or a kind of a cyberpunk modern kind of fantasy you ha it's kind of expected that these people don't just sort of live in the kind of more i don't know like medieval or, or whatever kind of historical looking fantasy that a more traditional piece might do so you have if you had a kind of an urban fantasy set sort of in a city that's semi-modern it would be really weird but we've kind of accepted that that might be the case in, say, a sword and sorcery novel. You know, you've just got, you know, I'm thinking Conan the Barbarian. You know, <laughs> it's you don't really go into that kind of a book and think, hmm, what skills has this woman come into it? But maybe that's the problem. I I don't know, but it, it does seem to be kind of a, a big divide, I think, when you look at the kinds of subgenres the fantasy books sit in and whether or not the women have more interesting jobs and skills before the adventure or this narrative actually starts well i have to give out another shout out in this case to um nicholas eames's bloody rose um nicholas eames has just won um a david gemmel award for his kings of the wild uh, and that book was very very male heavy um yeah intensely so and i enjoyed it because you know it's a good book um, but I asked him and his publisher if I could have an advance uh, copy of Bloody Rose. And 
bloody hell, it is good. And it addresses all of these points that we, we have here, which is that it follows Tam, who is... She she is a barmaid, okay, but she starts out that way and she is um, a bard. So for those who haven't read Nicholas Eames's previous book, um, they have this idea of the mercenary bands that go around and fight monsters either for profit in the arenas, a bit like gladiatorial shows, or they go out and are genuinely heroic. It's very tongue-in-cheek, it's very light-hearted, it's very bloody, but, you know, it, it is it is a good read. And in the first one, it followed a band called Fable, who were... Um, getting the band back together because they were all retired and they came back for one last big hurrah. Uh, But this one follows the daughter of one of those guys who is Bloody Rose and she has a band um, and it is about half and half. There are, you know, now when Tam joins them, who's a girl, uh, yeah, sure, Tam is currently learning how to use a sword to defend herself because one of the jokes in the previous book was how the bards always end up being killed and they have to keep replacing them. But in this one, all of the other women are bloody good fighters and it's led by Bloody Rose, who is um, the leader of it. And nobody questions, you know, the fact that she's a, a woman. Nobody questions her fighting skills. Um, there's a, an ink witch in there called um, Cura. Um, we've got Tam, we've got Follow. It's just, it is filled with women who are just getting on and doing their jobs. And sure, you've got Tam learning how to do stuff, but the others are already there and at the peak and nobody questions them and they are all held in re- reverence and it's just brilliant. And I have to say, they have periods. And I, I was quite impressed because we were talking about this previously and it's just thrown in like, you know, at one point they have to go off and sort themselves out. And there's like, yes, because, you know, a load of women travelling on the road together would all get their period at the same time. And it was just a nice touch. So a big shout out to that book that really does come into its own, I think. Whereas science fiction is about looking towards the future, much of fantasy draws on the past or a fictionalised version of the past. While some may argue this necessitates the relegation of women and their careers, we are talking about not only fiction, but fantasy fiction here. Women are often written out of history despite having played major roles. When fantasy stories based on historical periods do this, it perpetuates the myth that women had no positions of power. So with that in mind, can you think of any examples where women in historical fantasy, or fantasy clearly based on historical time periods where women have held powerful and or interesting jobs, that have felt historically accurate? This is so this is problematic for me because I feel like I feel undereducated on the subject of what women did in the past because they are written out of history. So, you know, when I think we talked previously about um Cameron Hurley's uh Women Have Always Fought essay. And, you know, that was surprising to me. I didn't know that that was the case. I, You know, it, it it wasn't something that I was taught in school, that, you know, the female Vikings or you know, whatever. It, it, the history books that I read and learned, you know, and I went to an all-girls school and still we were always learning about the men. And so I find this difficult in the sense that we must have done more. <laughs> we must have done because what woman would be, you know, happy with just sitting around and not not being involved? There's got to be plenty of them that that put their oar in because I would. But maybe that's just me. Yeah, I just I don't know what what would have been historically accurate because I don't feel like I've been educated correctly. If that makes any sense. Well, I think there's quite a lot around um, Elizabeth I um, and there's a huge um, fascination with the Tudors in particular and, and obviously Henry VIII because there was so much going on at that time and you can write so much about it. And I know it's not um, sort of fancy from that point of view, certainly not Henry VIII stuff, but there's quite a lot of um, sort of reinterpretations of, of Queen Elizabeth. Um, on my bookshelf I had... Um, Triumph, oh, I've forgotten the, the name of it, but spelt with two Fs at the end, published by, I think it was Angry Robot, and also the Death Scent stuff by um, Robin Jarvis, which again was set in Queen Elizabeth's court. And I'm pretty sure I've read other stuff that, you know, has been through my hands and then been passed on. Because it's a time of change, but also it's a time of change headed by a very strong woman. But that was the only one I could really think of. Um, I really liked Bernard Cornwall's uh, The Winter King trilogy, um, set in the Arthurian tradition and I remember there was a strong woman in that but again she was 
she was really kind of secondary um, and very much sort of not the love interest, but in the background quite a bit. So, again, not great examples. Um, so this reminded me of the Shattered Sea trilogy um, that I'm pretty sure that the main character's mother is the queen who holds the keys to the treasury. And that's a kind of building on. And that, I think this is loosely Viking, um, but it's it's, you know, based on a woman having... Uh, control over the household and not just the household the household's budget and what that budget is used to you know how how it's used what it's used to purchase you know how the stores ever how how basically how kind of it's like a mini economy the household is a mini economy and she has this control and i think that is actually possibly historically accurate i think there is it's because i mean you you hear this it's almost become a cliche that you know the woman is the you know her power is rooted in the household but i think in some societies that was actually translated into you know it, it was literally like she had the purse strings well you're quite right i mean for my next work in progress i am researching into iceland and icelandic law and history as well and you're absolutely right um we got into a conversation with popverse contributor contributor fenton and he and i were having the same sort of information that we dug up through research which is that it was really easy for women Viking women to um, divorce their husbands um, and they could hold land and they had a um, in Iceland they have something called their little parliaments the little ones were called the things so the thing and then they had the big one which was called the all thing um, and women could go to these and could stand up and speak and be heard and they had an awful lot more um, power in those times um, partly I think because when when the men went away and went raiding, which they did an awful lot, because you're know, up in Iceland and whatever, there's there's not a lot that you can really grow there, and you need to kind of go out and get more resources and, and better settlements. Um, when they went doing that, the women were left at home to run the farm and do everything. And unlike in Poldark, where Ross goes away for a couple of weeks and then comes back and shouts at Demelza for giving away one of the barns, all the um, Viking men kind of came back and went, oh, yes, well done. You have basically done all my work in my absence. And I think women got a lot of respect for that. Um, and that's something I'm certainly hoping to work into future novels. And hopefully there'll be other people, you know, doing similar research of, of the Vikings and the others that will um, work its way into to new fantasy as well. Um, the one that I, I have thought of is Outlander. But then I don't know if that because it's time travel does it count as sci-fi even though it's really a magical thing. It's Ooh, a little bit yeah it, yeah it, it's a bit of a murky one. But I'm going to call it fantasy. I think it's more fantasy. Oh yeah, it's um, not science fiction. No, it's more historical fiction than anything. Yeah yeah, I'm going to say historical fantasy. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that that's one where they actually give Claire a lot more to do and she's quite you know very active and she has a lot of skills but then you know she's bringing it from those skills from a more modern time into the past but it is at least um quite historically accurate in some of the pieces like the um the one scene where she's uh what are they doing they're dyeing the wool or something like that with the uh the urine oh yeah and they actually like we you know make the the cloth but um that that's really interesting and um i went to i'm not going to say the author's name because i'll say that wrong too and i'll just get another lecture about polgara polgara you know but um <laughs> the author of outlander came to uh oxford one year and i went and see saw her speak and she was talking about how like she was very interested in ensuring that despite it being, you know, kind of fantastical and, and completely not historically accurate, <laughs> um, think pieces like that elements of, you know, how they did things and what the women would have been doing at the time that those were correct. Um, and I think she did a pretty good job of that in the series. So Megan, you were just talking about Cameron Hurley and obviously we'd be talking about the Vikings, which leads me on to another question. Uh, so it was recently uncovered that a lot of Viking warrior greys actually contained skeletons of women. And in Japan, there were many female samurai known as bushi, if I've said that right. Apologies if I haven't. Uh, this shouldn't come as a surprise. It's something we know from Cameron Hurley's essay, Women Have Always Fought. And it's also something that we explored last year in an episode with Juliet McKenna. And yet, 
writers and readers still shy away from warrior women characters as this, um, as our opening quote from Mr. Talman's reviewer showed to us. So I guess the question is, why do they shy away? Is it um, that readers won't believe in it? Um, I mean, we my my Facebook feed and everything is obviously an echo chamber. Um, and, you know, plenty of guys seem fine with this. But we do know from anecdotal evidence that there are some men that just go up to Waterstones and go, oh, no, I don't read that. It's by a woman or it's got female characters in it. That doesn't appeal to me. So why do we think people are still resistant to it? I think partly, you know, as I was saying, it's like the education thing, because I I just didn't really, you know, other than like Joan of Arc, I never really read about or learned about women going out and just and and fighting the way that the men did. And so for me, especially when it comes to sort of the the traditional fantasy tropes and subgenres where it is kind of um, inspired by history it it does seem strange when that happens just because that has been completely not what i was taught when i was growing up so i certainly think that is a factor but that might be one side of it which is obviously genuine belief but it comes back to our question of if you can believe that there are dragons in this world why is it such a big leap to believe that there might be you know female skilled female fighters well, yeah, absolutely. It's like my favourite uh, book, possibly of all time, The Hero and the Crown. <laughs> you know, the dragon fighter is the woman, and she's amazing. <laughs> she is. It is a really fantastic book, which I just read recently. Thank you, Megan. Well, I do wonder if it maybe has something to do with the fact that when you read a book, there's only so far you can push um willing suspension of disbelief and you kind of go okay there's dragons okay there's magic and maybe for some people we obviously again we know some fabulous readers some fabulous writers brilliant reviewers but there must be some people out there who still go yeah but taking it you know taking a woman warrior as being the hero is just a step too far maybe (laughs) yeah (laughs) what's that an empowered woman no but it is it's all a generational thing and i do wonder if as things are going on um, and as as time progresses, whether the next generation just won't bat an eyelid because they've been so used to it. And at the moment, we're just seeing a bit of a resistance because obviously, you know, the main generation with all the spending money perhaps is the one that doesn't necessarily believe in women being able to do this. Or even if they don't believe it, maybe just don't enjoy it. But there's coming up through the ranks are all the people who do understand this and do believe it. And you're going to get something like... Um, Again, Nicholas Eames's Bloody Rose or RJ's books with um, Morella Khan. They are going to grab a new set of readers who are then going to want more of that kind of thing. And whether, as well as we were talking about um, Viking Graves and, and all these essays and things coming out, whether it's just time, time will take us there eventually and we're just making inroads into it at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think um, what Megan said was pretty, um, pretty important reason actually why so many people still find it hard to believe which is education and the fact that you know we were all raised to um to imbibe half half unconsciously half actually consciously that women have had not subservient roles but certainly more domesticated roles throughout history um so that's why you know that's why something like female viking warriors makes headline news because it's a shock because nobody has you know we've basically looked at the past we've made a judgment which we possibly didn't have evidence to make um and that judgment has come from kind of like thousands of years of you know possibly prejudice you know kind of compounded together so it's very hard i think one when you you're born and you inherit that kind of bias it's very hard to see beyond um you know kind of what your own eyes are telling you and that's it's really sad and i think that you you're right about um the next generation and there's been so much discussion about these topics that i really feel like we might be able to you know um get over this inherited bias you know within the next few decades Um, maybe that's being really really over positive but I'd like to think that that's where we're heading yeah it's interesting though I I was thinking about um, Greek mythology which I love 
But you look at kind of the gods in Greek mythology and the women are just as vicious and manipulative and violent and cruel as the men. And I find it interesting when you go from sort of looking at, at those myths and then the way that this, the narratives then sort of changed as time went on and we started to see more characters or mythology, you know, where the women weren't on the sort of the same level. And it's just interesting, you know, kind of a, a cultural shift. So it's obviously, it's happened before where we thought that the the fem- the goddesses were just as incredible as the gods. Like, it, so surely we can get back there. Maybe because they're gods, it protects them. You know, that gives them some kind of immunity from the, the you know, mortal women you know we're we're not we're not gods and we're on a very different plane <laughs> why are we and this is not just obviously a lot this is not female writers who've done this, this is male writers um why are men so happy to hand over power to 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 god to female goddesses but they're not happy to hand over power to female mortals and that's definitely something we touched on in our um you know our kind of femme fatales myths fantasy women episode we were talking about the power of you know of, of of kind of like supernatural women and how there were so many examples of, of female supernatural creatures and it's it's kind of bizarre it's almost one of those like um almost like a, a male fantasy that you know they they want to keep mortal women in their place and yet in imbue these kind of supernatural creatures or goddesses with these superhuman qualities that they don't really they're not comfortable with seeing in their wives or sisters or their mothers say (laughs) yeah you probably want your mother doing some of the things that the greek goddesses do it's quite fair (laughs) (laughs) interesting though that there's a that there's such a difference between Mm. those two you know and yeah absolutely and i think there's just you could go off for, for hours about all the different types of mythology and also the different cultures that have different characters and different roles for their women and things like that. Oh, it's just oh, it's a, a Pandora's box. There you are. <laughs> yes. So obviously we've talked about the idea that we have this inherited bias um, and there's also the physiological fact that the vast majority of women are not as strong as men. So it might be that naturally you would be more believable to have a man in the stronger role rather than a woman. But if we're thinking of warrior women, my mind turns first to Brienne of Tarth from Game of Thrones. Now, while Gwendolyn Christie is an amazingly good-looking woman in real life, in the book, Brienne is described as at best unattractive and at worst ugly. So why do we think that women in secondary fantasy that have warrior roles can't also be beautiful at the same time? Is this where I be quite disparaging of the menfolk? Apologies, male listeners. I know you're not all like this, but it does come across as kind of, well, if we're going to allow the woman to be strong, physically strong, she can't then also be beautiful. They can't because, you know, then she's taking on the masculine traits and she's taking on a masculine role. Then she's not allowed to also be, you know, completely seductive and and just irresistible. She could be one or the other. And it seems Mm -hmm. like we're kind of it's too much power to give her both physical strength and beauty yeah the beauty belongs to the female trait and the strength belongs to the male trait and you can't have both which is very sad because i like a strong and beautiful man i mean yes what about like you know hercules and you know the biggest heroes of myth yeah so i mean megan's got a point that obviously you've got um you can't sort of have a woman that is both strong and physically attractive because then <laughs> what can men do? But I also wonder if there's sort of an element of Western um, beauty involved because to be as physically strong as a man, a woman has to be supremely muscled, which means probably she's going to have broad shoulders and small breasts. And that's not what Westerners look for in their beauty, beauty standards. So it would be interesting to see if there is... Um, less biased towards female warriors in um, literature from other areas where there are very different beauty standards. I do remember that picture that went around Facebook of a guy who gave a picture of a woman to various different people throughout different countries and got each of them to instill 
uh, Photoshop effects of what they thought beauty was. And you looked at all, and they were all massively different as to, you know, all the changes they've made. Mm. Whether there is, you know, some cultures out there that go, actually, warrior women are absolutely fucking gorgeous. And we love the, the big shoulders and the small breasts. That's what we look for in a woman. And whether that reflects within their literature um, as you know, being more prominent perhaps and more heroines who look like this and can also fight. So moving on from warrior women to perhaps the exact opposite, uh, in many periods of history in which fantasy writers draw upon for inspiration, prostitution was a common way for women to make money. So how does the use of prostitute characters impact the development of interesting female characters more widely? Can we have female prostitute characters in fantasy that are well characterised, ones that don't exist purely to be the recipients of sexual violence? What do we think? Well, this would be a perfect opportunity to bring up Kushiel's Dart by Jacqueline Carey, but I haven't read it. Um, and I just keep seeing people recommending it all over the place. Um, and the, the, obviously the main character is a courtesan and uh, that, that debate about um, sexuality and, and, and prostitution and, and the ideas surrounding that as, as a kind of profession um, are that's central to the, the theme of the book. Um, so I feel like this is a missed opportunity. <laughs> Actually, and also, we had uh, Jacqueline Carey on the blog for five questions, if people are interested. Uh, Just, you know, shout out to the blog. But um, this has actually made me think back to sort of the historical accuracy piece, because in the American Civil War, they used prostitutes as spies, which is really interesting. And so prostitutes actually became really, really important to the war effort because they kind of, you know, got them... The soldiers kind of, you know, got them to feel comfortable and they would just, you know, tell them little tidbits and then that they would then relay that back to their own teams. And it was just um, that was actually, you know, a historical, really interesting way that those prostitutes had an active involvement in, you know, the wider narrative of the time. I don't have any examples in this. I couldn't think of a single prostitute character that was in any way useful. There might be something, again, in my massive reading history, but there was nothing that really jumped out at me. Is that not kind of sad? To me, I think it's very uh, like a sad indictment that we never have. We often see female prostitutes in these sort of fantasy novels, but we don't see them as you know, really characters in their own right, characters who have more to do than just to be, you know, recipients of the violence or a, a kind of a titillating side adventure. Um, have you read Rebecca Levine? No. Um, because her Hollow God series, she's got a male prostitute uh, who's one of the main characters who ends up going on quite an adventure. And he's like a brilliant character. Um and like really unusual i cannot think of any other examples where i've seen a male prostitute who he basically works in a brothel uh, and he while he's on the adventure i think he's thinking about like oh god why can't i just go back to the brothel where everything was straightforward and my life was easy and i had a great life there and now my life is crap because i'm on an adventure and you know i don't know where i am and i could, could die tomorrow kind of thing um and that was a great representation. He's one of the best characters in, um, so I think he's in the second book of the series, actually. Um, oh, uh, I'll have to read it. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. It's a Hollow God series because the smile is fair. Well, I did think of one character while we were chatting, but it doesn't really count as uh, fantasy. It's more science fiction. I was thinking Inara from Firefly. Um, and I know that Joss Whedon built up a, a whole idea about this Inara being a prostitute but at the same time it being legalised and her having the power. I know this one episode where Mal has a fight with one of her clients and he basically turns around and goes, you will never work again, you'll be like a cheap dockside whore, to which she turns around and goes, no, you don't understand I run the list, I will report you to my council, you will be blacklisted, you will never ever have a companion visit you again you will have to resort to basically to being nice to women to get them to go out to with you I thought that was a really, a really nice twist. And it actually, what I read was that um, Joss Whedon was planning to kind of 
um, have some very dubious stuff in the later sections of Firefly and it got cancelled before he could delve into the murkier side of it all. And that was a, that was the one time when I was quite pleased that Firefly got cancelled in advance because I went, that's quite a strong character and that's a really positive way of looking at, you know, how that how the sex industry can be used and legalised and made legitimate. And if I say made powerful, that kind of makes the wrong one. It gives the power back to the women and makes them less victims and more in control. I really did like that. So I was glad that Firefly never went on to talk about gang rape and, and stuff like that. But but it was it was just a, a very a very interesting one. And I think it was nicely balanced by Mal, who was always very much of the, oh yeah, you're just a common whore, which was kind of really irritating in some respects, but also I think reflected a it kind of took what would be the audience's natural reaction and challenged it by showing that Mal was wrong on so many levels, despite the fact that it also made me think, oh Mal, you're such an idiot. <laughs> One thing I have noticed um, is a trend that where magic is concerned, there's still a very strong gender division. Um, so you have mages, which can be kind of men or women, but you can also have um, witches and you never really see a male witch. Um, and I suppose you've got female wizards in the form of Harry Potter and everything, but where are the male witches? Is it just not cool to be a male witch? What do we think? You know, it's like in, in in Harry Potter. You know, you have to have a different word for it. You know, it's a wizard or a witch. Um, and I feel it's a bit like the the arguments around: is it actor or actress? Is it just actor for all of it? Is it, you know, why do we need feel the need to have a definition? Gendered. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's it's just frustrating more than anything else. Um, I remember back in my teenage years of reading um, Robert Jordan's um, The Wheel of Time um, and they had a very strong division kind of like with men and women and the men were more powerful but their magic was tainted. Um, yeah. And the women the women had pure power but on the other hand, they, sorry Robert Jordan, but they were also kind of irritating and petty and you, you kind of still find yourself siding with the men a bit. Um, but again, well, it was... They this- turned into a coven, didn't they, um, in, in a... You know, that's not a bad thing. It's just that the they they, they had these factions where some were like man loving factions, and they had like very basic opposite man hating factions. And you could just tell this was written by a man. Like there's, <laughs> it just gave itself away in that. You know, and the, and of course the poor men who managed to uh, in- develop the gift uh, went mad because that's what the taint does to you if you exercise the power. So it meant that the women had all control. Uh, so yeah, it was yeah not not a great representation. So one of my favourite examples of this is where you have Lucy's wonderful books, yay! And oh. she didn't pay me to say this. <laughs> you have to say it. Um, so yeah, I I really like. Now I'm really concerned that I'm going to say your character names wrong, and you're going to lecture me again. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's fine. You can say them however you want. Would you like me to say them how they're said in the audiobook? Would that help? <laughs> oh. don't, don't even trust that. <laughs> well, so I, I really loved that Nadia's the the healer and then Brigen, she has more of the sort of the, the fighty powers. Uh, that's that's me being really technical there. Fighty powers. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I really liked that. Um and it, it kind of goes against what you'd sort of expect and you know Bregan has more of the like a more of a temper that I is more supportive calm he's just he's a more comforting kind of character I was a little bit in love with him as well so <clears throat> yeah he's he's very much in touch with his feminine side I was oh. like a man who's in touch with his feminine side you know like you know not I wanted a healer character rather than you know just another battle mage masculine. oh yeah well forever. you did well because yeah i'd tap that um <laughs> <laughs> so would she <laughs> spoilers <laughs> but yeah no it's a good point because you know you're right there's this when it comes to magic that it there are definitely um there's a definite split there between uh, war magic you know super destructive stuff and charm magic you know where it's like 
healing, um, you know, uh, even things like, uh, I'm, I'm kind of almost getting Skyrim vibes here, but, you know, like the kind of magic that, that tricks people or or just uh, is subtle, like kind of gets into the, the mind or gives you nightmares. That kind of magic is is more kind of the female side because it's not confrontational. It's mm. subtle. It's quiet. It's um, it, it doesn't have that kind of masculine energy behind it. So I, I, I think that does seem to crop up in a lot of fantasy that male magic is, especially in something like, you know, the sword of truth. That is such a good example of this, and I really hate talking about it because it's one of the worst for representation issues. There's so many things going on there, but the main character in that really does have I mean, he's he it ends up being described as a war wizard. <laughs> Who could believe that? And the female character's magic is basically to make men, usually men, it works on women too, but make them uh, worship her, so then they never harm her, but they become completely mindless worshipping drones so they they all their personality has gone but that's her magic so that's what she does it's like her feminine magic so i feel like that is like the, the kind of prime example of of the differences when we when we you know when you talk about a gendered um, magic system motherhood has always been a standard role for women throughout the ages uh, and it's usually seen women stay at home or be seen as more vulnerable particularly if they're pregnant so is this something that fantasy perpetuates or do we have some examples of powerful mothers? And I'm going to dive right in here before any of you say anything and I'm going to say Cersei. Um, more so in the TV adaptation than in the book because in the book she's pretty much a plain psycho. But in the books, uh, sorry, in the TV series, she is very much fixated on her kids and she is an almost, at the beginning, sympathetic character who clearly wants the best for her offspring despite their incestuous background. And... She is willing to climb up the, the role's power, not just for herself, but for her children in the first instance, and also for her family as well. She sort of has a very strong sense of loyalty to her father and her brothers, which is, is lacking in the two guys. Do you guys have any examples of um, mothers that you think are, are really kick-ass in fantasy? The, the problem is that I'm thinking about them, and I'm thinking like Cersei, and also uh, I'm going to forget her name... Um, but Ador's mother in the first of RJ's books in Age of Assassins, they kind oh, of yes. become the queen. Yeah, they become obsessive and they kind of they fall into the kind of more evil role where it's like they will do anything and destroy countries, cities, you know, worlds for their children, and you know they move into that that psychopathic area <laughs> rather than saying well they're a strong mother figure who's doing good so it comes back to this whole the hero aspect of it i can think the the examples i think of of mothers where they're not kind of where their motherhood isn't relegating them to the kind of the sidelines or to to stay at home and just look after the children and not get involved they are the opposite extreme where they are part of the problem. <laughs> it's true. I mean, like, I was just thinking of Tenar for Mercy, because she has her own storyline um, kind of in the second book, The Tombs of Atuan, uh, where kind of Jed actually ends up kind of rescuing her or liberating her, maybe is a better word, from her, mm -hmm. uh, her kind of rather um, dark life hope kind of holy life but she ends up marrying and settling down and and kind of becoming almost like a farm wife um but then her husband dies and actually she returns in the fourth book as uh, a mother with a grown-up with grown-up children um who ends up taking another child to, to raise but by that point she's she i mean she's always been a very independent um you know positive figure who has she's not made of malice at all and she's certainly not a control freak uh she's just a really great representation of a woman who you know you see her as a young woman and then you see her as a woman who has raised children and who have left home and she's still got enormous um qualities and a lot to offer to the plot line and a lot to offer to the world uh and but it's Ursula Le Guin she she's fantastic hear hear well, one of the problems I have with mothers within fiction, not just fancy, but within anything, is that they are almost there as sort of a plot device. They are just mothers. That's it. The motherhood is their defining characteristic. And 
that's kind of it. That's all they exist for. Whereas, you know, perhaps a young heroine who isn't a mother has other things she has, you know, um, flaws and characters. And like Megan was saying, they go vicious because they just want to do everything for their kids. You never get a mother who being a mother is just part of who she is. You know, actually, she's also on a quest to do this, that, the other, you know, and is carrying a, a kid along. I think the closest I ever came to that is not a mother figure, but a father figure, which was in um, Pete, Peter Newman's The Vagrant, where basically there's a kick-ass warrior wandering around with a small baby. And as well as killing people, he has to put the baby somewhere safe first and then fight them. Um, and as well as, you know, trying to fend off ogres and things like that, he's also got to find something to feed the baby. So he has to basically carry, um, sorry, carry, lead a goat around with him as well. So he's constantly got milk. And although it's not a mother figure, you know, for parenthood, I feel that Peter Newman has struck a really good blow because that was just, that was just fantastic. I love that book. And going back again, I was just sitting here thinking about Game of Thrones. Cersei's the obvious one, but in the books in particular, less so in the TV series, you've got Catelyn, who is, she is mostly a mother, but she's also got more character, more background, more development than many other women do when they sort of come within the motherhood role. And then, of course, I was thinking Daenerys, who is the mother of dragons. And to be fair, that's a pretty kick-ass mother. Yeah, you know, she was, and she was actually a mother very briefly, albeit very briefly. Um, so, I mean, as a mother of a human, I'm I'm going by the TV because I have not read any of the books. But um, yeah, no, I mean, and actually, the whole motherhood kind of a title is she's incorporated that into her, um, you know, in her into her grand kind of persona. So, you know, and isn't that what all the slaves chant as she frees frees them? That's true, mother of all the slaves. So we've obviously gone all around the houses. So let's come back to where we started with the trope of the questing party. So if we think about um, not just the Black River Chronicles, but all the other books we've read where there's been a quest, what kind of roles within the party tend to go to women? Can you th- and can you think of any examples where the women have had external job-related skills that didn't apply directly to the quest at hand? So Megan pointed out that men often start out as blacksmiths or pig farmers or something like that. Um, well, whereas women are sort of princesses or something like something a little bit more defining and slightly more useless. Well, <laughs> useless when it comes to being in a questing party, because, you know, having a blacksmith along is going to be quite useful. Princess, not so much. I mean, the when you think about questing parties, uh, I don't think either of you have probably read these, but um, one of my favourite comic series at the moment is Rat Queens, which is basically just a kind of riff on D&D type questing things but with a sort of R rating bent with drugs and sex orgies and like yeah but with orcs and various you know <laughs> and all sorts of things dwarves and but it's basically the the questing party is entirely made up of women um and they they interact with other various questing parties as well, like one which is the Daves, because everyone in that questing party is called Dave. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, it's it's absolutely brilliant. And so then, you know, that's a really good example because it, it has all the, the kind of for the classic tropes of questing party characters. So, you know, you, the one that's a bit ditzy you know the one that's you know the really strong one the one that, that barrels into battle without thinking the ones you know that that the mage that stays back but uses magic to save them and that sort of thing so like all those the typical archetypes that you would expect are all there but they're all women and they're all very different and they you know so they they come with their own skills their own backstory and all that kind of stuff and i yeah i just i love that and i think it's a brilliant brilliant series it's um and it it plays with a lot of ideas of gender as well just generally and i highly recommend it but then also another favorite of ours on this show uh jen williams so i i really loved that um in the copper cat trilogy you know widrin's a a mercenary and and again rat queens they're they're mercenaries as well but you don't kind of necessarily assume that a woman would be a mercenary you know you th- you hear the word mercenary and you kind of or at least i do i i default to that male thing and i just i really loved that Widrin 
was a mercenary, was a woman, had very defining personality traits. You know, you I could imagine her as a real person. Um, and, you know, she had very specific skills. She had a backstory that how she developed those skills. And it was just it was brilliant. Yeah, here, here. Jen is <laughs> great at um, doing female characters and giving them really great, really great backstories, really great roles. You always feel like they come fully formed to the adventure that they have been doing a lot of other stuff especially vintage in her new series oh yeah really feel like you know because she is middle-aged so she's definitely had a life like she's definitely been doing stuff before she gets to the the kind of where where the story opens um and you really feel like you know that that's there's a lot of thought that's gone into that um and that these these women are not just responding to to events that they unfold, that they're using skills that they've already um, honed and harnessed before the narrative begins uh, to, you know, further their adventures. I'm going to be harping on again. Sorry about my favourite Nicholas Eames at the moment. I've just written down the names of all of them. So now that I think about it all, there is an even split between the men and the women. So we have Kira, who is the Ink Witch, who is traditional kind of um spell caster you've got brune who is the shapeshifter who turns himself into a bear which can be kind of handy um then you've got uh lastleaf who is theoretically a guy but also half rabbit because yeah um and he's a sort of the flashy swordsman or whatever but then you've got rose who is the leader who basically has a little bit of everything in it and as you guys were talking about earlier she comes as a fully formed character you're not watching her learn you know work her way up she is already the one that they whisper about when she walks into the tavern it's not like oh it's it's fable or whatever it's oh it's bloody rose and then you have tam the girl who you follow through and she's your outsider you know sort of looking in and learning about the band and that's how you kind of go um and learn about all the different characters and find your way through their world and again thinking back back to mr talman's very good black river chronicles a nice exact even mix as well um, you've got, when I was thinking about Talamans in comparison to Eames, Eames very definitely has roles. So you've, like, say, you've got the flashy sword fighter, you've got the witch or the, the spellcaster, you've got the shapeshifter. But when I was thinking about, um, Talamans ones, I was thinking, well, actually, it's less their actual skills and the more, more the way they employ them. So if you think about Tia, I often think she's more sort of the stealthy, crafty one. And then you've got Huel, who has sort of brute force, um, and he's the... They're all warriors, but he's more your stereotypical warrior. And then Lorraine, who's kind of got... She's the magic side, and she's also, I suppose, the conscience. Um, and then, Megan, help me out. What's the name of the um, the point-of-view character? We're really sorry, David, we've completely forgotten. But the point-of-view character, um, again, is... I suppose he's a little bit of all of them. He seems to be the kind of the, the moderator of them all, always trying to, to keep them together. Um, but again, I suppose he sort of comes a little bit under self. But they, I like the fact that they were defined by the way they went about things rather than actually sort of forcing them into particular roles of this one will be the fighter, this one will be the spellcaster and so on. I thought that was a nice way of doing it for a change and building on the natural characteristics of the individual genders. You've got the guy who's the absolute brute force and then the girl who's trying to think her way through things one of the girls is trying to think away through things magically. One of them is trying to think away through things of how to stab you in the back. Um, I thought that was that was a really nice way to approach it and to kind of make them all very believable. This is not a, a kind of quest narrative, but I just finished uh, Nomi Novik's new book, uh, Spinning Silver, um, which is a bit of a kind of Rumpelstiltskin-esque. It's not actually that much like it, uh, but it's it's kind of got these elements um, within it. But the main character, uh, Miriam, is so it ta- it it obviously um, picks up a lot of kind of Jewish culture and the idea of um, Jewish people being uh, very kind of economic minded, very business minded. The villages that they they live in, uh, because of course her father is a moneylender, and she um, kind of by almost by default uh, becomes a moneylender because he's not a very good one uh, and she thinks she can do it better. Do it so well that it attracts attention from uh, the kind of beyond the, uh, the, the a different kingdom, which is a kind of site won't give anything away, but supernatural element there. Um, but it's, it's really, really great. And I think she's such a, a good character. And the the whole, um, that, that whole book has got um, quite a lot 
great female characters and they're all very different and yeah well also because Seth Dickinson wrote um, The Traitor which I and the reason I liked that book was because the main character was um and I want to say bureaucrat she was a bureaucrat but she was also an accountant hey yeah more accountants accountants can be cool too I know so my last question for this evening is have the trends been changing but I think I'm going to change that slightly because I think we have already agreed that actually the trends are changing we're getting a lot more um of fantasy fiction that is casting women in strong roles um, and we're definitely getting better at writing more interesting careers for women in fantasy. So I think just to kind of wrap up, um, for anybody who is listening and didn't have a notebook to hand, shall we run through those ones that we think are really good and show some really good quality women in good, strong roles that aren't necessarily um, conforming to stereotypes? So Megan, do you want to go first? Well, I'll bring it up again. I did mention it already, but Robin McKinley's the hero in the crown and Erin, she's amazing and I want to be her still i wanted to be her when i was 12 and i want to be her when i'm 30 it's fine um i would say uh i'm not sure entirely how to pronounce it again this is my my night for not not pronouncing things correctly but kaiser um so the king's huntress in melinda lowe's ash i just i i loved that she kind of had the this kind of retelling of cinderella where the the kind of the love interest is the leader of the the royal hunt um and she's a woman so that's pretty cool um i think we mentioned already sort of vintage in the winnowing flame series by jen williams uh also i really really love yasna and her mum. i think it's nalini in uh the stormlight archive um by brandon sanderson i i really love yasna she's just powerful she can fight really well she's just she has like She's the Beatrice character, um, and yes, I'm referencing Shakespeare here. But she is. She's like got that acid tongue thing, but she's also um, an academic, and she's just insanely clever and just fantastic. I'd say well, I'm. I can't give enough love to uh, RJ's books, and uh, I'm currently reading the third in the trilogy, King of Assassins, and Damn it's you. really. <laughs> Yeah, but it's really nice to see um, one of the characters you meet in the second book is a, a young woman, you know, by the third, which is set quite a bit later. You know, she's leading the the cavalry. And that's just, it's it's a really nice touch um, that you don't sort of for, forget them, but then you have other women, you know, that Merrill are being an assassin and so on. Well, we wouldn't Shorter know. McGuire. We wouldn't know not having had RJ's book. You know, RJ, who lives just around the corner from me, RJ whose book I don't have yet, <laughs> but Megan does. Just saying. Yeah, she said. well, <coughs> favourites. Uh... <laughs> Fine. Um, so, yeah, Shauna Maguire, Down Among the Sticks and Bones, which is my favourite of the novellas of hers. Um, you know, Jack's a doctor, basically. Um, you know, a bit of a odd kind of doctor, but it's still, still a doctor. Love that um, character. Yeah, she's fantastic. And then Juliet McKenna, we've got Thief's Gamble. Um, Livac, she's great as well. Um, you know, so there are a lot, I think, out there that are sort of more interesting and ha- are showing us that, that women can have interesting jobs in fantasy. But at the same time, when I was like thinking about all the sort of the mo- modern fantasy books I'd read, there were a lot that I just kind of dismissed as being kind of very typical so i think for for everyone that we say yes this has got something there's five more that are not so progressive what about you lucy i know that uh, megan stole your example of vintage there from jen williams <laughs> do you have anything you'd like to add miriam is from spinning silver it's a really great example of a, a woman in uh who's who's basically comes to the story with a really good occupation that she's really good at uh, i.e. money lending and uh, yeah it's great because um, obviously her father is a very good one and she basically saves the family from poverty by stepping into his shoes and making a really good go of it uh, and that's quite unusual uh, was it was really refreshing to read a couple of months ago I read uh, Deathless by uh, Kat Valant and it's fantastic I always go on about Deathless uh, but the the main character in that uh, is, is Mariah and she just has just read this book it's it's like one of the best representations of 
a female character ever um she she does actually end up uh, becoming a general like or becoming a, a, a ma- major military officer in the army um but that's you know after quite a, a long time kind of spent going between kind of worlds and the real world but it's a really really clever narrative uh that kind of documents the bolshevik revolution up until about 1953 it's really clever <sighs> my goodness yeah vintage uh, anything by jen is is really good uh, it's it's basically what i was saying before about women having this occupation then bringing it to the narrative um that that's that's what i'm always kind of on the lookout for for me um i'm gonna say it again bloody rose by nicholas seams was very good uh, mentioned song of ice and fire got some great people in that mustn't forget gail carragher who we mentioned at the beginning talaman who started all this off with his black river chronicles very excellent um, and someone we didn't really touch upon because he is pretty much a whole topic in himself. Um, Terry Pratchett, with obviously his witches and Angua and pretty much all the women in there who are not defined by their jobs, but all have kind of cool jobs. Um, like um, Adora Bell, Dearheart as well, <laughs> who is just one of my favourites. So sarcastic. In conclusion, then, when considering fantasy jobs for women, we're still finding that the traditional role of, of prostitute, princess and sideline mother are very popular within fantasy fiction. However, there are some writers out there whose female characters are breaking the mould, and further investigation into both history and other cultures is making modern Western writers more aware of women's capabilities on the battlefield, as well as on other, more traditionally male areas. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Please join us again next time.